If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Matthew chapter number 20. Matthew chapter number 20. Uh, and so it's great to see everyone again here this morning. It's good to have uh, our extended family, the Mackay family, with us. You pray for them. They'll be headed back to British Columbia, I think, on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, and that's quite the drive. And so they've got a long way to go. And, uh, but it's good to have them here, and we'll look forward to spending a little time together as a family this afternoon. Uh, for most of you know them, those of you that don't, we share, uh, we share five grandchildren and one more on the way and, our, and uh, two sets of married children. And so uh, we praise the Lord for their friendship and for their investment uh, in the lives of their daughters and, and then uh, in our grandchildren as well. But welcome. We're glad that you're here today and hope every, the service will be a blessing. Matthew chapter 20 uh, and verse number 29 will begin here. Uh, the Bible says, And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because that they should hold their peace. But they cried more saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? And they say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And so Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Now I want to speak this morning on some thoughts on blindness and compassion. So we consider Nicodemus in his need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that you've given us together. Thank you for uh, the good music and stirring our hearts and ministering to our souls already. And Lord, I pray that you'd feed us now with your word. May we be hungry for it. May we be open to it. May each one of us be asking you and seeking you to show us the truth that we need today that will help us to be more faithful in our walk uh, with you and to be more effective for your cause. In Jesus' name we pray and amen. You know, as we look here as they... Are, are coming here into Jericho, uh, and so they're, they're pressed with the mob. You have to understand, at this point, Jesus is, uh, the fame of him goes before him wherever he goes. And so a lot of times, whenever he gets someplace, there's, there are crowds. And there are, it's easy to just kind of pass by, uh, sometimes in the, middle, in the middle of a crowd, people that have needs. Uh, you get busy, you get overwhelmed, you get focused on things that are going on. Uh, and so, of course, Jesus never missed an opportunity, uh, but there was a need for them to cry out. They had to exercise some faith. And I think uh, as we look at this this morning, if you're thinking, well, I know this story, and most of us probably do, uh, and have heard many messages preached on it, I would, uh, I would say this, don't think this morning that if you're already saved, that there's not parallels here to their needs and our needs this morning. Uh, I know that I have to constantly maintain and evaluate my own walk with God and where I am spiritually because our natural tendency is to drift, especially in times of busyness uh, and, and times and seasons of busy ministry. You know, when you look here, you have to understand that to the blind, the world was a lot different place than it is today. I'm not saying that, that, that they've got it easy and people that are blind today have it easy. But I am saying, for the most part, in countries like ours, if someone is, is blind and disabled, they're, they're, they don't have to go out and make a living sitting out on the street corner. 
they, they have some means. There, there are disability programs. There are schools for them to attend. There are jobs that at times they can do. They can be taught how to live and how to function and uh, maintain a home and, uh, and, and exist in that way and have uh, some hope of a decent life even though they've got to cope with uh, a disability like blindness. That wasn't that way for Bartimaeus and this other fellow. Their only hope of, of sustaining life was to sit out and to beg uh, by, the, by the highway hoping that people would have compassion and mercy upon them. You know, that for me is a little bit, I have to really work at putting my mind to that because we have people on corners everywhere that we go here. And when you look at them, most of them are able-bodied. There are a few that are not, but for the most part, they're able-bodied. And in my mind, the way that it works a lot of time is, you know, if you really wanted a job, there are help-wanted signs everywhere. Uh, and, you know, you see the people out there and sometimes they've got, uh, maybe they're more legitimately there. But then at other times, uh, you know, there's a guy that is frequently on a stop by our house. And uh, one day he even had a sign, I think I've mentioned it before, that just said, I'm not going to lie, I just need a beer. Uh, and it's just not the same in many cases as it was in biblical times. And so I want to kind of put our mindset back in biblical times. Here are two men that are blind that uh, unless they've got family that's willing to help them and take care of them, they really have no way to even get their next meal aside uh, from the good graces of people, the compassion of people as they walk by. And the people here clearly are frustrated with their existence in this moment. It may not have been that way every day. But in this moment and in this time when Jesus is coming and his disciples and the people want to get to him, they are clearly annoyed that they are shouting over them to try to get the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're essentially engaging in their life's work. You know, most of us would look at someone and they're, they're heavily involved and committed to their life's work and we admire that. To, the, to Bartimaeus and his friend, that is their life's work. That's all they have to do. That's the only way that they have to live. They can't afford to take a day off, especially not on this day when Jesus comes and there's greater hope than there's ever been before for not just a meal, but for sight. There's a greater hope within them because of the, the reputation and the testimony of what Jesus is doing. So here they are begging. And they have to live in a world that assumes that their blindness is because of sin. We'll look at some scripture to kind of make that point here in just a few moments, but there is an assumption with those who are lame or those who are, uh, who are mentally deprived or those who are blind that the reason that they're afflicted is because of sin, either their sin or the sins of their parents. And we'll see that in just a moment. But what I'm saying is that that's the world in which they live. They're, they're condescended upon, they're looked down upon, they're assumed to be uh, getting what they deserve, if you will. And so here they are, assumed with this assumption of sin cloud hanging over them. Theirs was a life of shame and hopelessness. It's bad enough to be hopeless, but to then live in shame on top of that because of the assumption of others that in most cases in this world are inaccurate, we look and we see uh, that, uh, that they are just doing what they can 
And so Bartimaeus and his friend have one opportunity to have their life changed. You know, so often we come to church and we think, you know, well, God, you spoke to my heart today, but I'm not ready to, I'm not ready to give my heart to Christ and be saved, or I'm not ready to repent of my sin as a Christian and get thoroughly right with God and to seek his empowerment. I kind of want to keep my foot in one side or the other. I, I want to be engaged in the things that I want to do as well as uh, some things ministry-wise or in my relationship with God. Uh, and so we just sometimes have that mindset. Understand here, they have one shot. There's no evidence anywhere in the scripture that Jesus ever again went to Jericho. Now, maybe he did, the Bible didn't record it. But nowhere from this point in his ministry on is there any indication that Jesus ever would go back here. They've got one opportunity. One opportunity to have someone make a difference in their life. And my friends, just quite honestly this morning, if the Holy Spirit convicts you to repent from your sin and to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, or as a Christian, he convicts you about something in your life that the Spirit of God speaks to you about and convicts you about, don't assume or take for granted that that conviction will come back when you decide that you want to be convicted and want to get things squared away with God. There is a way and method in which the Spirit of God moves, and when he speaks to me, I better listen and take advantage of the opportunity. And so here they are. They have one opportunity to exercise their faith and to experience the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. They withstood the crowd to gain his attention. They're crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd is looking at them with disgust, telling them to be quiet, telling them to get out of the way, telling them to not bother the Lord Jesus telling them that they're not worth his time and they're, uh, at least by insinuation, that they're not worthy to come into his presence and they withstand the crowd. Their exercise of faith draws his compassion. It was their exercise of faith that caused Jesus to stop in the midst of the multitude and focus his attention on them and to say, I have something for you. I love you. I'm here for you. I came to seek you out. Uh, but it was that cry of faith that compelled Jesus to be drawn to them. So when we look and understand here, let's understand some things about blindness. When I think of blindness, uh, my first instinct is to think of complete and total blindness. Whenever someone says to me, uh, I remember having an evangelist years ago, uh, at our church in Arkansas that came through and he's well known, he's still well known, travels extensively uh, and I knew he was blind and he came to our church and we were having dinner and we were just talking and, uh, and we just uh, talked about he does all kinds of different things he has, he folds his, his certain dollar bills are folded a certain way so whenever he reaches into his wallet he knows whether he, what, what denomination of bill he's drawing. Uh, he doesn't know whether he's getting a Presbyterian bill or a Baptist bill or now whether it's a one, a five, a ten, a fifty, whatever. Uh, uh, and so he, everything is laid out. His, if he's traveling without his wife, she packs everything with him in a certain way so that he knows that his clothes are going to match and that everything is taken care of. And, uh, and so we're talking about his disability. And he says, I can, I can see shadows. You, you can't walk up to him uh, and him not know that you're there. He, he's aware if the room is lit, he's aware of your presence. Uh, because he can see the shadow. He has, he has no real vision. 
He can't read. He can't make out who is there, but he can tell that there's a shape there. And he can tell generally whether that shape uh, most of the time is a lady or whether it's a man. Uh, he can make some distinctions, but until he hears a voice, he's not sure who's there. And so there's, there's blindness in the sense of total darkness, which I think would equate well to those that are lost in their sin, those that are without Christ, those that have never trusted Jesus as their Savior. They are in uh, total darkness. The only light that they have available to them is the light that's made manifest in our lives as Jesus reflects upon us. And as God speaks out to them. And then you've got those like uh, Brother LeBeau that, that see shadows. I would equate someone in that type of blindness, that measure of blindness that has some light, that has some desire uh, and knowledge of God and a desire to, to serve him, to worship him on some level, uh, as more of someone that's maybe a little carnal in nature. They're more concerned about their comfort, their well-being, doing what they do than they are what God wants them to do. It's not that they're unconcerned about what God has for their life. Uh, but their priority is still their own desires and their own way of doing things rather than uh, going to the scripture and allowing the spirit of God to lead them and to fill them and to, uh, to guide their life. And so th there's this, the issue of those that would see shadows. Then there are others that are simply legally blind. Uh, they can tell who's talking to them. They can see when they come up. We had uh, a lady in our church, a sweet lady. She had macular degeneration. Uh, and the older she gets, the worse it was. She had surgery at different times to try to slow the progress of the disease in her eyes. Uh, she would uh, sit and she would sing in the choir for a while with, uh, she would have this big giant magnifying glass. So she's holding uh, her, her book for the choir music in one hand and her magnifying glass in the other. Uh, same way when she read her Bible, whenever you go to their home and sit in their living room, her uh, Bible and books, whatever else she was reading, always had a big massive magnifying glass on it because that's the only way that she could see to read. She wasn't supposed to drive, but she did. I'm glad I don't live in that town anymore. Uh, but, uh, you know, she, she would get around and she could function. Uh, and so, but she was legally blind. And I would equate this, and this is just kind of my own theology here. I can't prove this biblically. I'm just trying to make some application that I do think that we see some biblical principles to. And I'm about to share those with you uh, to just kind of put us in the story. How does this fit in? How can this help me? I would say those that are that are legally blind uh, in that environment and that degree of blindness would equate to the self-righteous. Those that think that they're, they're, the, they're the ones in the crowd trying to hush Bartimaeus. They're the ones that feel as if they've got all the knowledge and they're the ones that are holy. They're the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the ones that are, uh, you know, you can't impress me with the message. And if you dare impress me with it, maybe I'll listen a little bit uh, as they come and as they go. Because they, they will walk on water and they've got it all figured out spiritually. They're, they're blinded by their sin. If I feel that way about myself, I'm not righteous I'm actually being the detriment to the cause of Christ and to what God's trying to do uh, in his church or in my life interacting with others. And I would equate that to a form of blindness. Now, why do I say that? Let's consider the definition of, uh, of blindness. And here is, here is the definition of uh, what it is. It is not having the faculty of discernment. Now, obviously, it means to be destitute of seeing. When we talk about blindness in a sensory capacity, uh, it, is the, it is to be destitute of the sense of sight. But in the spiritual realm, 
And in a practical realm, it means not having the faculty of discernment. It can mean to be destitute of intellectual light. That's not to say that someone is lacking intelligence. It means someone that has intelligence but's not a willing, that's not willing to use it. They're, they're, it's just turned off. It's someone who's unable to understand or to judge. So we're not supposed to judge. So you have to make judgments. We're not supposed to pass sentence upon. We're not to put ourselves in the place of God and say, because you did this, this is going to happen. But I have to make judgments about uh, who I'm going to fellowship with, how much time I'm going to give them, uh, how close I'm going to get, who's going to influence my life, uh, who am I going to spend time with. It, it is to use spiritual discernment in life that we might live lives that are healthy and pleasing to God, serving God, uh, and reaching out to the lost and developing relationships that are going to draw them uh, to a desire to put their faith and trust. It also means to darken the understanding. So we talk about someone I've got, I have, uh, I trust Christ, I begin to grow, I'm discipled, I'm walking perhaps for a time in my life with the Spirit of God and have great power of God and then uh, as time passes on I kind of drift back out of that and and uh, some carnality and some of my own desires start to seep back in. Uh, and, and I begin to start to rationalize and justify things uh, that I know are displeasing to God. Uh, and I look at those things at what is happening. My understanding is becoming darkened. And the longer that I stay in that mode, the more dark my understanding becomes. Now, uh, where, why would I say those things? Uh, consider a few passages here. Uh, in 1 John chapter number 2... In verse number 11, he says, But he that hateth his brother is in darkness. Understand, First John is written to Christians, And walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. And we're not talking about a lost person here. We're talking about a saved person. Because they have things that have crept into their life. In this case, a hatred for their brother or sister in Christ. Uh, a despising of them, a loathing of them. Uh, they're walking in darkness. Why? Because they've allowed darkness to come in uh, and to blind their eyes. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, a little bit lengthier passage here, but, uh, but he begins uh, as the Apostle Paul speaks here, and he's making a contest here really to the self-righteous because he's, he's making the point uh, that the law as Moses gave it is complete. It's fulfilled. But we're still trying to view things, the church here at Corinth is still trying to view things as if it were in full effect in the ceremonial law. The moral law of God will never pass until he returns and we're no longer here. But the ceremonial law is done, it's fulfilled. That part that's given to, to show us our sin is gone. Who hath also made us able, he says here, ministers of the New Testament. Notice what he says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. We have far too many churches where they're so focused on the letter of the law that they miss the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is far more important than the letter. Why did God give what he gave is more important in, in meeting the spirit of that uh, than just checking boxes, dotting I's and crossing T's. Uh, though the, where he says of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. But if the menstruation of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance which glory was to be done away 
how shall the, not the menstruation of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the menstruation of, the con, of condemnation be glory, much more than the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious hath no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Paul's not mincing words. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remained the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. I'm saying today that's the time that a lot of Christians removed the veil and began to see the Christ. That he loves and that he gave himself uh, for us. And uh, I'm, God is holy and we're to be holy. That's not changed. But the reality is, is that we need to be focused on the God of the word as much as we are on the word of God. And that we don't miss a relationship with Christ in the midst of uh, of trying to understand and implement uh, his word in our life. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 3 through 5, he says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God to the face of Jesus Christ. We are to let uh, that light shine. We sing that song as children uh, that we are going to let, the, 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 let our light shine for the gospel. In John chapter number 9, in the first three verses, he says, And Jesus passed, and he saw a man which is blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, uh, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither did this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And what am I saying this morning? I'm saying simply this. That we need to be mindful as Christians that if we don't stay focused in our relationship with Christ and the spirit of the law and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, that we too can become blinded. And don't assume that others that are blind spiritually are blind because they're unwilling to come to Christ. Perhaps they just haven't seen someone live real enough in their life that has drawn them uh, and caused them to want to stand up and exercise a measure of faith so that the compassion of Christ could reach them. Now today, many are blind to the consequences of sin. That's certainly true of the loss and more so as people become more and more biblically illiterate, they're simply blind to truth. They don't understand that truth is absolute. They don't understand that truth is from God. Uh, we have generations now of people that have been trained up and, and brought up and indoctrinated with the mindset that as long as it's true to me, it's true and I'll be all right. Yeah. No, there's only one truth Amen. and truth is absolute. 
And no matter how it's spun or how good it's made to sound or how pretty it's packaged, when all is said and done and we stand before God, there's going to be only one truth by which we'll be judged, and that's the truth of the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Many people are blind to truth. Some are blind to reality. Many good church people that love the Lord are blind to the reality of, uh, of how we present or how we carry on or how we view can, can cast a shadow of bl and blind and darkness uh, on those that perhaps might be compelled to seek the Lord uh, if we understood reality of where we are and what our relationship is to those that God puts in our path. There's those that are blind to their need for Christ. Many just simply don't, what do I need God for? Why do I need Jesus? We touched on this from the Christian standpoint just a, a service or two ago and the idea and the mindset of, you know, sometimes we're compelled to just, I want to do it on my own. I, I want to be self-reliant, self-dependent. And we can't be dependent upon self for anything and succeed. We must be fully dependent upon him. So that background in mind, let's consider that Bartimaeus now is here without hope, but for his faith and the Lord's compassion. If it was not for his faith to cry out, Jesus would have in all likelihood just kept walking by. But he did cry out. And he had faith to cry out. He didn't understand fully what he was crying out for, but he had hope that something could be done that would change his life. He had faith to cry out. I want you to notice not only did he have faith to cry out, but just a reminder, I've mentioned this already, but he had faith to defy the crowd. How many of us, even in this room as Christians, have enough faith to defy the crowd and to cry out to God. I want you to consider also that he had faith to ask for the impossible. Think about what he's asking for here. He's not asking Jesus for a meal. He can get that from the crowd. He can sit out there week after week. He's done it for his entire life. And he can uh, plead with people in their good graces to provide him a meal. He's not looking for a meal. He's looking for the healing of his blindness. He's looking for something that's impossible. How long, my Christian friends, has it been since you've gone to God and sought something from him that's impossible? How long has it been since I've sought for God to do something in my life, to speak to my heart, uh, to show me the way, to reveal to me his will, uh, will in a way that is impossible for me to comprehend, but because God loves me and is compassionate toward me, will I cry out to him? Consider that when he cried out, number one, that Jesus' compassion took notice. His compassion took notice. Notice in, notice in verse number 32. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? He took notice. It's amazing how God takes notice when his children cry out in faith. It's amazing how Jesus takes notice when the lost cry out in faith. Those that are seeking him. And those that are seeking him as his children that are longing for a closer, deeper relationship with their heavenly father. Notice, first of all, the cry for help. He cried out for help. He humbled himself. How long, Christian, has it been since you humbled yourself and cried out to God for help? How long has it been since I came to God and said, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I have been blinded to my need of you. Would you take away my blindness, open my eyes, give me sight so that I can see that I am utterly hopeless and helpless without you. Who and what I need and the answer is Jesus. Without him I have no hope. Not just for salvation but to live. 
Without him, I have no opportunity uh, to please him or to have value in my life. He's willing to cry out for help. And I plead with you, member of Victory Baptist Church, Christian of many years, never lose sight of the fact that we need to be constantly crying out to God for help to understand his word, to fulfill his will, to stay focused on what he has for our lives, to be attentive to those that he puts in our path that need us to shine his light into their life and to have the sweet spirit and a godly countenance that will help them to be drawn to Christ. Notice he's crying for help. Notice secondly that the, that the need is obvious. There's an obvious need. We're still talking here about him taking notice. What did he take notice of? He took notice of their cry for help and he took notice that the need was obvious. They're not, they're not here crying out for something that they don't really need. You understand? They're, they're not that person sitting at the edge of the Walmart parking lot that have a full tank of gas and a sign that says we need gas. This is looking for more. There's a real need. They're actually blind. They actually are helpless. They actually have no hope. And he took need of that. My friends, Jesus has all of the ability uh, that's necessary to notice the need that we have. You're not going to go to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I, uh, I need your attention. I need your help. Because he's not going to look and say, oh, you don't need my help. He's going to look and say, oh, yeah, your, your need is pretty obvious to me. Let me help you. Yeah. That compassion, that love. His obvious need. I want you to notice that what Jesus sees in them is their personal potential. So how do you know, Pastor? They followed him. You know, there are a lot of times in the Bible that whenever somebody tried to follow Jesus, that he told them not to. And it, it's not because he didn't see their potential. It's because he had something else for them to do. But he saw what they could become. I don't think Jesus ever suffered from the ability of seeing and knowing what any person that would put their faith and trust in him as their Messiah, that he could turn their life into. But we struggle with that. Yeah. It's hard sometimes uh, to, to in, in the moment or in a moment of frustration or a moment of some spiritual blindness on, uh, on our part as Christians to look at someone that's crying out for help and to, to see beyond their present condition to their future potential. It's a wonderful thing when God can reveal to you someone's potential. There's someone that comes in that you would look at maybe and say, they'll never get their life right. They could never, I mean, somebody that maybe that's, that's my age that comes in and they're obviously their life is a wreck and, uh, and they've just been failure after failure after failure throughout life and would look at them and say, it's too late for them. There's no hope for them. Their habits are too well ingrained. They're, they're never going to change. Or would I look at them and say, God can change anybody. I, I want to see the potential. I want to minister to the potential. I want to minister to what God can do in their life. So, Pastor, I've done that all my life, and, and that's, so few ever turn out. No, but the one, if only one ever does, it'll be well worth the effort. Amen. Jesus came and gave everything for all of us individually and collectively. He sees the personal potential. He didn't look at Bartimaeus and say, you know what? You don't have enough to offer, so I'm going to save some of this power and give the next blind person some healing. No, he looked and he said, I want to I make you whole. See, God doesn't expect us to be whole and, and to define being whole as being everything that someone else is. 
but everything that he made us to be. Every person here is a unique creation from God. We're not here by happenstance. We're not here accidentally. We're not here by uh, this, just simply the process of nature. We were created and formed by God. You're a unique individual that he created for his purpose, for his pleasure, and that he loves. And he did not give every one of us the same talents and the same gifts and the same ability. He didn't give everyone the same level of intellect. He didn't give everyone the same uh, ability to uh, see and discern and solve problems. But he gave all of us special and unique gifts. And it's our obligation as his children to seek his empowerment in those gifts and then to use them for his glory. But Jesus saw the gift. Sometimes it's easy to see. Sometimes it's not. It's a blessing to get around someone and uh, look back at my age now and see someone that perhaps I knew in high school and everyone had written off and said they'll never become anything. And whatever it is and whatever endeavor that they're serving the Lord in now, whether it's in a business world or uh, whether it's in ministry, to look and see them succeeding and then having a sweet relationship with God. And saying, I'm so glad that God always sees our potential and what we could be even when man does not. Compassion took notice. God's compassion will take notice if you cry out to him in faith. Secondly, consider that compassion takes advantage of opportunity. Notice in verse 34, so Jesus had compassion upon them and touched them. He didn't waste the opportunity. Oh, to have back wasted opportunities. How many, I wonder when it's all said and done, how many people will spend an eternity in the lake of fire because of missed opportunities by Christians. When that person was seeking and hungry and the Spirit of God compelled us to reach out to them and we disobeyed. We didn't listen. I'm not saying that you need to chase every person that you see down the street and beat them over the head with the Bible and try to give them the gospel. I'm saying when the Spirit of God gives opportunity, seize the opportunity. Jesus touched them. He didn't just say, you know, and it's interesting here because Jesus could have just said, have your sight and kept walking, but he didn't. He stopped, Alec, he came to them and he made it personal and he touched them. Amen. The world needs God's people willing to take enough time to touch their lives. You want to see people come to Christ Disciple, your life matter. Whose life is your life touched? Whose life are you pouring into investing? Compassion will take advantage of opportunity. Jesus took advantage of the opportunity to show love. When he ignored the crowd and he came to them and he was invested in what their actual need was, what he was expressing to them was his love for them. He was coming to them and he was saying, you know what? You don't have to come to me. I'll come to you. I hear you. I hear your cry. I see your need. Let me come to you. And that's the way that God works. When we were lost and we became aware of our sin and we began to seek God, he came to us. As a Christian, when I pour my heart out to him in prayer, when I have burdens that need to be lifted, when I have needs that need to be met, uh, when I have a soul that needs to be soothed and to be healed and uh, to be uh, motivated to serve him, he comes to me. I don't have to chase him down. I don't have to fight for his attention. I don't have to wonder if he's too busy. I don't have to make an appointment. I cry out in faith and he shows love by coming to me.
But I want you to notice also that in the showing of love, there was not a denial of truth. Sometimes in the world in which we live now, uh, we equate supporting someone with just saying that whatever it is that they're doing is okay. If you're supposed to be supportive of, uh, of, of you know, parents that have school-age children, they're, they're told constantly, just be supportive of your child. If they, if they think they're this, that, or the other, just be supportive of that. If they want to uh, be this, or the, just be supportive of that. Listen, uh, support truth. I mean, certainly, when our boys were growing up and they were involved in sports, we were always there to support them. When they had dreams of doing this, we were always there to try to be a support to them. But if they came back and said that they were going to do something that was, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're growing up. And if they would have come home and said, uh, you know, Dad, I think tomorrow I'm going to become a girl. I'm not supporting that. Why? Because it's not, it's not godly. I'm saying don't sacrifice truth. Truth, the sacrifice of truth is not showing love. Nor is it taking advantage of an opportunity. Express truth. True love expresses truth. Genuine love, genuine friendship that's iron sharpening iron friendship does not sugarcoat. It just expresses truth. I'm not saying that it's intentionally abrasive or, or harsh. Uh, I'm saying Paul said, as Paul said in one of the passages that we read, that he's not mincing words. He's just speaking the truth plainly. He's just putting it out there so that it's not misunderstood, so that it's not too soft, that, it, that the point is missed, uh, but it's evident and Jesus comes to them and he has compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight. He expressed truth. You're blind. He didn't come to them and say, oh, you're not really blind. Let me touch you and you'll see. No, you are blind. You understand? Jesus could have just come and said, you just think you're blind. Robert, let me touch you. And then your eyes open. He said, see what I mean? That's, that's kind of like modern day logic, right? That's the way that we think a lot of times. No, he didn't come and say that. He said, no, yeah, you're right, Bartimaeus. You have a need. You do need me. You are without hope. But you had faith. And I have compassion. Let me touch you. And he touched him. And he received his sight because Jesus was willing to express truth. There was no other way but him. Thirdly, consider in compassion taking advantage of the opportunity that it was a demonstration of God's power. Compassion spurs us to action. You cannot truly be compassionate and not act. Genuine compassion must act. It must overcome. It must reach out. It must fight its way through the crowd. And it must overcome the need. Compassion spurs us to action. And I want you to notice the, uh, the, the, as this unfolds here, what do you see? You see the love of Christ. You see that added to truth. And you see that then added to the power of God. And as it's added to the power of God, it inspires those that are around. You know what we're lacking in our churches today is we lack genuine love, a clinging to and a true expression of truth in a way in which God power, God's power is made manifest so that others are inspired to be drawn to Christ. I, I can't truly inspire someone if I don't have a love for them and my Savior. No one can be truly inspired if there's not a measure of truth, if truth is not preeminent. If Jesus isn't the preeminent one exalted 
And until God's power is put on display, why would anyone want to change anyway? I mean, imagine being in the crowd that day and they cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon us. And Jesus come up and say, I'll have compassion on you. I'll have mercy on you. Let me touch you. And he touches them and they don't receive their sight. Compassion doesn't matter at that point. If God's power is not involved, then there's no life change that's going to happen. And they came and they experienced the touch of the power and a demonstration of the power of God. And my friends, this morning, God wants to demonstrate his power through you. He wants to demonstrate his power to those that are in need through your walk with God. To be inspired as, you, as they see your love for him and his love for them. As you express truth and God demonstrates power and watch in amazement as the impossible happens and people turn from their sin to Christ. As those that are broken are healed and restored. Those that are wounded are, uh, are raised up and put back on the battlefield for God's glory. Compassion takes advantage of opportunity. Consider thirdly that compassion also then opens blind eyes. Their eyes immediately receive sight. Immediately they receive sight. Three thoughts about this. Compassion opens blind eyes. If my eyes this morning are blinded by pride, and that applies to the lost and to the saved. When it comes to our spiritual discernment, our intellectual discernment, our ability to make decisions, judgments, evaluations about ourselves. If I allow pride to overwhelm my life, I will not see clearly. I will not have understanding. If my eyes are blinded by pride, I'm going to miss my opportunity to be made whole. But compassion opens the blindness. The, those that come in the passage we read in 2 Timothy, if those are Corinthians, those that come with the veil still on, uh, with, uh, you know, pounding out the law uh, and emphasizing the law rather than the spirit of the law to draw us to Christ, uh, all they're going to do is cause someone to uh, dive deeper into their blindness. But those that come with compassion and love and, uh, and worship of God uh, will help those that, that are blinded even by their pride to be willing to have their eyes open. Second thing that I would ask you to consider are those that have been, that had their eyes blinded by pleasure. We're more concerned of our own pleasure than we are doing and experiencing the will of God. The third thing that I would say along this line is are our eyes blinded by prejudice. And prejudice can mean a lot of things. We always equate it instantaneously. We equate it generally to uh, racial prejudice. Uh, but prejudice just simply means a preconceived idea. By the definition of the word, and certainly it has application uh, in, in, our, in the world racially, but I would just say this, that from a biblical standpoint, there's only one race, the human race. We all have a soul. We all have the same God. We all have the same Father. We all have the same Creator. We're all created for the same purpose. We're all loved by the same Savior. Our sins all forgiven, and we all make up one great big family of God uh, whenever we come together. Now, if we can't understand and get that right down here, you better get ready because when you get to heaven, it's going to be. We're all the same. There's no distinction. There's no difference. No one's better than another. We all need and have the same God as our Savior. But it means more than that. We talk about being blinded by prejudice. Sometimes we're prejudiced by, uh, by a tradition. 
Sometimes we're, we're prejudiced by our generational divides. Sometimes we're prejudiced by, uh, by you know, things that uh, maybe we had drilled into us as a child that really, if you study the Word of God, is not too biblically accurate. But what's put, I've learned this over the years, that what someone is indoctrinated with when they first trust Christ, even if it's erroneous, it's really, really difficult to ever get them past that. Uh, we have uh, people that I know that they were saved out of Catholicism uh, and they've been saved for 40 years and they still, uh, if their, their instinct is to think Catholicly or to think whatever their background or whatever their heritage is. I'm not trying to pick on uh, one particular group per se. I, I'm just saying uh, that if, if that's your culture and your heritage, my wife's culture being from Puerto Rico is largely in the Hispanic world, is largely Catholic in its background, its undertone. That shapes a lot of thinking, that shapes a lot of structure within society that's culturally ingrained in people as they, uh, as they come forward. What does that mean? That just means that my intuition has bent toward that way of thinking. That's a prejudice. It's a preconceived idea. I, I need God to lift the, blinds, the blindness of prejudice from me that I might see things clearly through his word. Compassion opens blind eyes. Compassion takes advantage of opportunity. Compassion takes notice of genuine, authentic needs. And then lastly and fourthly this morning, compassion causes men to follow. Compassion causes men to follow notice. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Am I following him this morning? I would say just a couple of thoughts about this and we'll be done this morning. Number one, when they saw, they followed. What do you mean, Pastor? They're not blind anymore. If I'm having a hard time following God this morning as a Christian, it's because I've got some blind area in my life. I have an area where I'm not seeing clearly. There's some spiritual darkness. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because when they saw, they followed. If I see as he sees, if I see as the word of God communicates, as I see as the spirit of God leads, I am compelled and have a desire to follow. It's natural to follow. You take young children, and two of our granddaughters are in the room this morning, they're six and four. If, if their natural training by how they interact with people in their life is to cower in fear, then that's an indication that they're being abused by the person that they're cowering and fearing from. But if, if their reaction is to come running with open arms and to interact, then they're in a loving, compassionate environment. You see that even in pets and things of that nature. Some, an animal that's, that's abused that will shy away and cower. But one that is loved and is, uh, is cared for uh, will interact and will, uh, will be playful and will be confident and will be comfortable. Why? Because when we love it compels others to respond with love. When we see, we're compelled to follow. It's natural to follow him when we see. And lastly, I would say this, that whether it's conversion or our birth in the Christian life, that that conversion and birth naturally comes with hunger. And then growth is natural. 
it's not natural. If, 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 a, if a baby comes and is not hungry, there's a problem. By the way, even at, at our advanced age, if we never get hungry, there's a problem. I, I know you can't tell it by looking at me, but sometimes when I get really sick, I have no desire to eat. Right now, I don't have a problem with that. I, I'm, I'm getting over what I've had the last couple of weeks. Uh, and so there's not a desire to eat. When I had COVID uh, in 2020, uh, I basically for a month, I didn't eat anything more in a day than a few crackers and maybe about half a bowl of soup. I didn't want anything. I didn't even want that. But I, I had you know, General over here making me eat it. There was no desire. That lack of desire for nourishment is a sign of great ailment. If you're a Christian that's not hungry for God, if you're, if you're a saved person that's not hungry to learn of him, to, to love him, to spend time with him, if you're not hungry for your Savior, there's a problem. Yes. And you take a, a little child that goes and our daughter Aaron's here and their, their little baby Jude that just has just turned six months. Uh, uh, she had a doctor's appointment this last week and first thing that they do and they go in uh, besides pricking them with a needle is they're going to get weights and measurements and all that kind of stuff and, uh, and they want to track the progress of growth. If they're not growing, there's a problem. Newborns, when they first come, they generally lose weight. Doctors watch that really close. When they go to their pediatrician, okay, they're born at this weight, they've dipped to this weight, are we making progress and gaining weight now? If we're not, there's a problem, and that problem become life-threatening if it's not corrected. Listen, too many Christians this morning are so blinded by the things of this world uh, that in, in our, in our, or our self-righteousness or whatever it may be that we may have trusted Christ and been born, but are we hungry and are we growing? Well, Pastor... You stopped growing a long time ago. Up, yeah. Still growing out sometimes more than I want to. I've been in this height since I was about 13. I stopped growing fairly early. But as a Christian, we should never stop growing. A Christian that doesn't grow is sick. And if I'm not willing to cry out, if I'm blind to the fact that I'm sick and I'm not willing to cry out in faith, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me, then I'm going to struggle to experience his compassion. He wants to give it. He wants to touch. He wants to heal. He wants to show love. He wants to show grace. But I have to understand that I need him and that only he can solve my problems. I wonder this morning how many blind eyes could be opened. If we would cry out to God and experience his compassion. So pastor, what about the lost people out there? They're waiting on you and me. They're not compelled or inspired to come to Christ because they don't see God's people growing and hungry and loving and seeing correctly. And it's amazing how God's hand and touch upon your life and mine would draw and inspire others to come and cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Am I blind this morning as a Christian? Do I have areas in my life where I'm blinded by my own self-righteousness, by tra tradition, by past hurts, by past failures, by struggles in my life? 
Am I blinded to the fact? Am I trying to figure it out on my own? Or am I willing to come and fight through the crowd and say, Jesus, you're the only solution to my problem. I'm here. Help me. He'll help you. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior this morning, he'll save you. Would you let him this morning love you, touch you, and open your eyes?